Warrior Woman, welcome back to the Warrior School podcast. This is episode 224. I have a guest for you today. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to dish up this guest episode. I was looking forward to this conversation for many, many months. uh, And I can finally bring it to you. So here it is. Episode one, no, not one, (laughs) episode 224, getting up to speed on the science of women's health and performance with Christine Yu. Yeah, that's right. Today, I am joined by Christine Yu. Christine is an award-winning journalist. She writes about sports, science, and health. She especially loves telling stories about this intersection of sports science and women athletes. She loves it so much that she wrote a book about it. Her book, which was birthed into this world earlier this year, is called Up to Speed. The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes. And I read it. I read it a few months ago. And it inspired actually a few podcasts that I did during my podcast sprint. And as soon as I finished it, I jumped into my email and I asked Christine if she'd come on the podcast to talk about her work and the book. So... She kindly accepted my invitation and we sat down one afternoon over a hot drink and we had a chat about the new groundbreaking science research work of women athletes and how it's changing how we play the game, literally how we play our sports and how we're playing this training game. Uh... I highly recommend reading Christine's book. It is so cool and so well written. She dives into really important key topics. She breaks it down so beautifully. There's like a chapter on kind of the history of sports science research and women and women athletes. Uh, There is sections on, you know, kind of that adolescence, pre-pubescence season, and then our menstrual cycle years, then perimenopause and postmenopausal years. She talks about, you know, breast health, uh, the creation of the sports bra. There is such beautiful storytelling in the book. She went and she interviewed a lot of female athletes to talk to them about specific topics that they've struggled with throughout their athletic careers and kind of what what the science and the research is doing in that particular area to really support them. I learned so much uh, from her book and go and read it, read it, read it after you listen to this conversation. I'm so excited to deliver this very cool conversation called Getting Up to Speed on the Science of Women's Health and Performance with Christine Yu. Okay, here we are. Christine, welcome to the Warrior School podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. 
it I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been pumped for this podcast episode for quite a few months now. Uh, and I see that you've been doing the rounds since birthing that book baby into the world. You are now like a podcast queen. Yeah, it's it's been a lot. It feels like, well, I haven't done a podcast in a while because I was just saying I was, I've been on vacation. So I'm like, what am I doing? What am I talking about now? But yeah, it's been a lot of fun talking to a lot of different folks and just trying to get the word out about the book. Yeah. The place that I really love to start is I love story, you know, and I, I love, I know a little bit about your story. I was like, I like to dig, dig deep into someone's world before we really, you know, sit down and have a, a cool conversation. And, but for a lot of people listening, you know, maybe they don't know pieces of your story. And there's a way that I really love to view it of, I'd love you to start with like, what do you do now? And what what is the the book or the project that you just birthed into the world? And then what are some of the key dots that, you know, you could connect that really led you to do the work that you do today? It, does that sound like a cool place that we could start? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I am a journalist. I write about sports and health and science. And really kind of my jam is this intersection between women's sports, women athletes, and sports science. Um, so I love kind of like digging into these like super nerdy topics and really understand how they apply to women. I mean, obviously it started off a little bit like personally, just wanting to learn a little bit more. Um, but also just because I felt like there wasn't enough information out there. A lot of it was very um, diet and fitness culture focused, if that makes sense. Um, so this book that just came out, it's called Up to Speed, The Groundbreaking Science of Women Athletes, really looks at um, what we do know and what we don't know about fe female athlete health and physiology. Because as I talk to a lot of athletes, elite athletes, you know, professionals, Olympians, um, as well as experts in the sports science field, what I came to realize was that we actually don't know a lot about women's bodies and in particular um, women's bodies in this athletic context. Um, and it was shocking to me to learn that, you know, very small portion of sports science research is focused on women specifically. You know, the statistic is somewhere around like 6% of sports science studies. Um, and as a journalist, it was shocking because like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm reading and I'm citing all of these studies. Am I doing this wrong? Am I doing a disservice to folks? So it kind of got me down this rabbit hole to really try to understand why it is that we know so little, why women are understudied. And really, um, for me, it was the question of, well, what are what's the implications of this, right? Like, how does this affect um, girls and women's health, athletic performance, injury, and just long-term well-being, right? Both physically, mentally, just as people. Um, so that's kind of the book. And I the dots that kind of led to it is, you know, I've always been active. I've played sports kind of throughout my life, you know, as since I was a kid, I'm not a very good athlete. It was like, you know, I'm old. So it was back in the day when like you could just play sports and have fun and like hang out with your friends. And, you know, it wasn't like this cutthroat thing about trying to get a college scholarship or something like that, or dreams of going pro. I just liked playing sports. Um, so th there was that. And um, I've also always been interested in science. You know, the original plan was to go to medical school. So I 
always been fascinated by the human body. And so I kind of detoured a little bit. Um, I never thought I would be a writer or journalist. I, like I said, I thought I would either go into medicine or I would work in the nonprofit sector, which I did for about 10, 15 years before I kind of pivoted and, and started this writing career. So it was, it's been really fun to be able to bring these like interests of mine that I've had my whole life together um, into this career that I've kind of built for myself and into this book. Um, so it's been fun. I keep telling my mom, I'm like, see, see, it's like my, you know, all that stuff I studied in college, like my college degree was not worthless. Like I'm using it now. Yeah. One of, one thing that my mom said to me before I did my first degree was, you know, it, you may never end up doing what you studied, but it's not about that. It will, it's about like you learning about yourself and responsibility and work ethic and all of, and that's always stuck with me as like a really big lesson that, yeah, in some experiences, we may not end up doing the thing that we set out to do, but it's like, it's all of this stuff like in there that teaches, a, teaches us a lot about ourselves and about life. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Uh, what did you play growing up? What's What did you do for, oh for sport? Yeah, I feel like I played pretty much every sport under the sun in some shape or form. Um, field hockey, lacrosse, soccer, swimming, a little bit of water polo. Um, and then like, as I, as I got older, I started running more kind of recreationally and like long distance running. Um, but yeah, it was just, it's kind of funny in the sense that, you know, my parents weren't particularly sporty. I also uh, ski and surf now and, and all of that, but um, my parents were never particularly sporty. And my mom always kind of, even now gives me a hard time about like working out or like lifting weights and all this stuff. So it's funny to me to think that like, I also grew up playing these sports because you don't see a lot of Asian kid, or at least, you know, when I was younger, there, you, there weren't a lot of role models for Asian girls, um, in terms of, you know, athletes and, and all of that. So, but it was fun because yeah, I got to develop so many different kinds of skills and learn to move my body in so many different types of ways. Yeah. I'm super interested to know, Christine, uh, you know, growing up, because like all of the stuff in the book, which we'll get into, like it's so much about, yeah, female, like female physio physiology, um, you know, there's like the chapters are broken down beautifully, like the one on breasts, like <laughs> breast health and sports, bra, like just so clever, but like the book is just full of, yeah, like the, the science, the research, the, you know, the, the, the experts that you spoke to all around, you know, females and, and sports and females and, and training growing, growing up, like what was your experience? Did you, do you remember having conversations about your menstrual cycle? Do you remember ever having conversations about, you know, being a, a female playing sport or thinking about it? Or when did that kind of first come into your 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 field of vision I guess of getting curious about hey like like females in sport or like female physiology yeah no definitely never talked about it right so I grew up um you know this would be like went to high school in the early 90s um we didn't definitely didn't talk about any of this stuff I mean I'm trying to think 
I don't think I ever talked to like my mom about my menstrual cycle or like getting my period for the first time. I was actually away from home when I got my period for the first time. And, but like, we never talked about that stuff. And I think that, um, especially within the world of sports, like at that time, it was so much about, um, just having the opportunity to play. Right. Um, you know, I had, I have an older brother who of course got to do everything and anything. And there was this sense that you almost had to not acknowledge the fact that you're a girl or a woman, right. When you were playing sports or, or being athletic, because you wanted, you wanted to prove that you were as tough as the boys, like you could do that same stuff and it didn't matter. Right. It was that sense of equality, if you will, to, be seen as equals on those playing fields. So you didn't want to call attention to anything that was different about you or that could be perceived as different about you. Um, you know, I remember like friends, like worrying, worrying about, I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that like, like I have very small breasts. So I didn't have to worry about this as much, but like friends about like being very self-conscious about like their boobs, like bouncing up and down when they ran or they played soccer and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was very much about kind of, almost leaving pieces of yourself on the sideline as you stepped on that field, if that makes sense. Um, and I'm trying to think when I really started to think about kind of female physiology. And honestly, it really wasn't until I was much older, probably until my 30, in my thirties, really, like when I got pregnant and had my first kid and my body just changed so dramatically, right? It's like being active all through pregnancy up until giving birth. And then after giving birth, just feeling so alien in my own body and not recognizing my own body at all and being like, I don't know what's going on <laughs> like, in any way, shape or form. Um, and then also around that time, hearing a doctor talk specifically about the female athlete triad for the first time, like actually naming it and actually talking about the connections between menstrual cycle health and bone health and nutrition. And I had always, you know, heard of, you know, girls losing their periods because they were active and it being presumed to be a good thing, right? It being presumed to be a sign that you were fit and very, you know, training really well and training really hard. But this was the first time that I really heard any kind of explanation about what was going on and really understanding that, wait a second, that's, that's not a, that's a myth. And B, there are long-term health repercussions here, right? So it was, it was honestly at that moment where it was kind of this aha, like light bulb that went off and it made me angry in the sense that I really want, I was like, why don't we know this information about our own bodies? Why aren't we giving girls this information when they're younger, when it actually is useful and makes sense, right? When it can actually have an impact. And I was, yeah, I was mad, but that was, I think one of the sparks that led me to really start to look further into this, you know, menstrual cycles, look further into female athlete health and all of the issues surrounding that. When was this? When was your first pregnancy when you started to really pay attention to, yeah, just the changes in your body? And when did you start to hear about the the triad? Yeah. So um, my oldest son was born in, and you're testing me now, 2007. Um, and then this, when I heard this doctor talk, it was probably 2013, 2014. So about 10 years ago, right? So like, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. 
Um, and yeah, it was, it was just shocking to me. At the time, were you already writing? Like, were you writing a lot about females in sport? So this was right around the time when I was making that career switch into journalism. Um, at that point, I was I was more writing for myself. It was like I was I was writing a blog and like doing stuff like that. Um, but it was it was around this time when I started getting into journalism and trying to figure out what it is what it was that I wanted to do through journalism. So it was definitely really helpful. <laughs> Yeah, there is um, an article that you wrote, it might have been a year or so ago, or maybe even a little bit recently around, there's no expiration date mm. of um, uh, of women, like a woman in being active in her life, really. Mm -hmm. And you start off the uh, in the article writing about how you started to notice a difference as you, you know, you're in your 40s, mid 40s, around just things felt a little bit harder, a bit slower. And then your husband made a joke about, hey, like it's all downhill after 40. Uh, when you, how long ago was that article, when you wrote that article? Um, that was earlier this year, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. So my husband's a couple years older than me and he would always joke, right? Because I'd be like, I'm always complaining of something hurting. And he's like, just you wait, just you wait until you get into your 40s and like your mid 40s, everything goes downhill. And it made me like, honestly, it made me mad at first um, because I was like, that's not true. Like there are things you can do, right, to counteract this. And like, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, but as I've gotten older, it's definitely feels a little inevitable. Um, but I think I think there's like one of the big realizations was that on the one hand, when I was saying this is ridiculous, like there are things you can do to counteract this, like part of that is just like the, the belief that we have agency, right? And we have agency and we can change some of this stuff. But it wasn't necessarily recognizing the fact that our bodies aren't static and our bodies do go through these physiological changes as we get older. And it's not a good, it's not a bad thing, right? Like it's, it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a thing that happens. Um, but I think when we constantly fight it, that's when you start to feel really badly about yourself, or at least that's when I started to feel really badly about myself because I was like, why can't I fix this? Why can't I turn this around? Why is it I'm doing all the same stuff? I'm working just as hard, but yet I still feel like crap right? Like I'm, my fitness feels like it's dropping off a cliff. I'm sore all the time. Everything hurts. Like it's my fault and I'm doing something wrong without recognizing, like stepping back and recognizing the larger context in which a, my body is functioning in, right? Like that it's physiologically changing. My hormones are changing. And of course I'm going to feel differently because of that. But also the, again, like the, the even bigger environmental context of like, the last couple of years have been really hard, right? There's like so much stuff that's been going on. And of course, that's also going to impact how I feel. Yeah, it's, you know, and for a lot of us, we we didn't understand our physiology and bodies and how that could impact our training and performance for a long time. And so when you start to experience these things and they feel harder or, you know, at certain times of the cycle, things are going on and we just don't have, we didn't have the knowledge or our coaches didn't have the knowledge or the, the research or the science wasn't there, which kind of leads us into the book that you wrote really is looking at, well, what is, what is the research? What does the science say? And if there's a lack of, well, then that 
is really hard to create a plan or a strategy uh, with no information. So yeah. it brings us to up to speed. And I'd love to start with where, when did the idea start to bubble inside you about, I've got to write a book about this? To be completely honest, that never happened. <laughs> that never happened. So I'm not one of those writers who has dreamed of writing a book since I was a kid. Um, it was actually my agent who suggested that, you know, hey, I, I think this could be a book. Like, I think this this is a really interesting idea. And I think you could blow it out into something bigger because I had written an article for Outside Magazine, I think in 2018, initially looking at some of, some of this gender data gap, right? Like some of the reasons why we do understudy women and women are underrepresented in sports science research. Um, so my agent had like look, had seen that article and she came to me and she's like, I, th I think there's something here. And I was like, I don't want to write a book. <laughs> like I want to do this. So, but anyhow, but we talked a little bit about it some more and um, she convinced me that it was a good idea. And I think for me, it was really coming to the recognition of, if I was going to write a book about anything and spend about three years of my life invested in something, this would be the topic, right? This is the thing that I care a lot about um, and have invested a lot of kind of my time and energy um, and passion into. And the other piece of it was really kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier was that I wanted this information to be out. Like I wanted people to have this information, especially you know, young girls, young, you know, adolescent girls, young women in college, um, because I felt like if we could get, and it's not even that there is a whole lot of information to get out, but it, at least if we could help set the context of like what they're dealing with, right? Um, if we could get that out, then maybe we could start to set a foundation for like a longer lifetime of being healthy and active and health and happy. Yeah. Why? I'd love to know why have women like females been neglected uh, and misrepresented by sports, the sports field for so long? I remember I did a presentation uh, a year or so ago and like I was just digging into all the research and I found that statistic, which was between I think it was 2014 and 2020 mm -hmm. or 21, it was 6% yeah. <laughs> of women, yeah, covered the sport and exercise science field. Like why? Why for so long have we, we we're not, we're not studied. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that there's, you know, a tendency to think that like, oh, you know, sports scientists have it out against or something against us, right? Or like to blame, you know, whether it's institutions or individual people. Um, but I think it's 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 more than that. Like I don't think any one person or institution or organization has like specifically and like maliciously been like, we're not gonna study women, right? Like we're this isn't what I want to do. I think it's more of just the way in which the systems around sports and science were constructed. And they were constructed in such a way that women were just left out of the narrative and it created this blind spot that we didn't even notice that women were left out, right? And so 
Um, what I mean by that is like when you think about sports, right? Like from the time of the ancient Greeks and Romans, like sports was for men. It was about men and their way to display their masculinity, you know, fight, do whatever it is, right? Um, but it was that arena for men. Um, and women weren't allowed to participate or, you know, it wasn't seen as a respectable thing to do or an appropriate thing to do. So when, you know, fast forward, right, you have all of these um, cultural norms that start to come up around sports and who sports is for, who should play sports and, and this whole idea that women and women's bodies are not appropriate for that arena. And then when scientists started to study or wanted to study more of the human body and how it responds to sports and exercise, you know, they had to obviously study athletes. And if you look around and think about it, like, who are they going to study? They're going to study the men because the men are the people that are playing sports. Um, and so that's just how the system starts, right? Like, that's just how we start to do things. And then in science, you start to create methodologies and certain methodologies methodologies become standard and gold standard. And that's the way that uh, your students do it and then their students and it just gets perpetuated, right? And so within science, you want to find out how a specific chemical reaction works, what happens there, you want to find out what's the role of one hormone or something like that. And you want to cut out as much as many variables as possible. So you can just focus on that one thing. And so when it comes to women, because we have menstrual cycles and our hormonal environments fluctuate unpredictably month to month, um, it creates a lot of noise. So again, it was just easier to not study women. It's just easier to study men because they don't have the same variability that women have. And so again, you just have these standards that start to develop um, that just become the way you do things and you don't question it. So I don't think it's really until um, recently, as more women have, be, have gotten involved in sports, as more women have come into the science fields as well and start to lead these research projects and make decisions about research funding, that we start to realize, wait a second, we left out a whole half of the population here and we probably should do something about it. Mm. What are you seeing are still some of the challenges that we face like within the research field to to be able to like close the gap and and to get more research on yeah on females yeah. and female physiology. I think funding is a big one um because research is expensive. It's not something that, you know, you and I can just go raise some money for and go support a, you know, a research project or something like that. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of like technology and equipment and space and all of this stuff. Um, and so for some funding organizations, it still can be hard to um, justify funding studies on women, especially if it's trying to answer a question that's already been answered with a population of men because it'll be seen as a redundant study sometimes, right? Like we already know what happens. We've studied that in men. Why do we need to study this in women? So I think that's a challenge. Um, I think that, you know, kind of part and parcel with that is, you know, research publications, those academic journals. Also, they're kind of the gatekeepers in terms of what studies get published. And you have to have your studies published in these high impact journals in order for them to be disseminated, in order for them to be taken seriously. 
So again, it depends on those editorial boards and those editors and their priorities and, and who they see uh, and what topics they see as important to, to publish in their, in their journals. Um, so I think those are some of the big factors, like just logistical factors, right? Like th that are really hard to kind of get around. Yeah, I'd love to know your thoughts on, you know, because in research we have qualitative and then we have quantitative. So, yes, like we have the qualitative side, which is like we've got to get into the lab and we there's a lot mm -hmm. of, you know, data and we're taking blood and we're like, you know, tracking numbers and, and yes, like to get them into those big research, um, you know, journal articles and to disseminate and have the, that hardcore evidence that's definitely really important. But What's your kind of view or, you know, even researching and talking to a lot of experts um, writing the book on the quantitative side of things? You know, you've got people like I myself have been a coach for 14 years. I've been training like my whole life. You've got other, you know, um, it doesn't have to just be women out there, but male coaches as well. But you've got this quantitative side of things mm -hmm. of like, you know, even us being females ourselves, we can now track, like we have an understanding yeah. of tracking our cycle and like, you know, our biofeedback and our data and we can start to see patterns. Did that come up at all? Like in writing the book, kind of this, you know, this balance between the the qualitative stuff, which takes a really long time to, to come out yeah. versus the quantitative side of things? Yeah, I'm trying to think. It didn't come up like as a huge sticking point, if you will. Um, but it, you know, it did come up in the sense of, I think in part to what you were just alluding to, right? The fact that quantitative studies do take a long time. They take a lot of money, but into in the interim, people have a lot of questions and people want answers and want some type of guidance, right? Um, so I think that the qualitative studies obviously are not that they're easy to do, but, but like in, you know, in, at least in comparison to the quantitative studies, they might be a little bit easier to do where you can at least get some initial information out there um, more quickly, if you will. I think the other piece of it is that with quantitative studies, you're always report or most of the time, right, reporting on a group response. So kind of like the average, even though you have, you might have a big sample size and all of that, you're still reporting on like, what's the average response to, I don't know, your menstrual, you know, high hormone phase in your menstrual cycle. How does that affect your lifting performance or something like that, right? You're looking at this average response. But the thing is, especially with women, there is no average, right? In the sense that every one of our our menstrual cycles, our hormonal environments are very different. And again, they change month to month, year to year. They're not always the same. You're not always going to have the same response all the time, right? So there is not really even an average even for like yourself. So I think what the qualitative information and things like case studies can be really helpful is that it, again, it at least provides some sort of guidance and some examples of what's actually going on out there, right? Like what's actually happening with this one athlete, who, you know, who has X, Y, or Z profile, right? But at least it gives you kind of a starting point, I think, that might help ground that information and that experience a little bit more for coaches and for athletes to start to wrap their heads around, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yeah, as you said, like every cycle could be different. This cycle compared to last or next cycle, the season of life you're in, stress, like your training, there's so many variables. Uh, but I think it can be really helpful. And, we're, you know, we're starting to see it through, you know, your work and some of the leaders in the field, like Dr. Stacey Sims, she does a lot of case study mm -hmm. work as well. And it's kind of nice for, for women in sport to be like, oh, hey, like I kind of, I see myself in, in that woman and maybe what she's doing. And, and then, you know, how we might approach uh, the training or the nutrition and have an understanding and then you know we can really take that agency on ourselves and and do our tracking of our cycle and learning what works for us but I think kind of having that just something to see like hey yeah. like okay it is possible or this is how you might navigate it because I'm not sure if you found this like writing the book you know we can have the you know the information and the the research and the science which is lacking. We definitely need mm -hmm. more of it. But then we've got this other side of, well, how do we approach it? Mm -hmm. Like, how do we put it all together? Yeah. What way? do you do? Right? Like, what do you do with this information? How do I even make sense of all of this? And I think that that's, I mean, what you said about being able to see yourself in that data or that science, it's really powerful, right? Like when you can especially if you've had experiences where you feel like your doctor doesn't understand or your coach doesn't understand, or like no one else seems to have a similar experience or like you just feel really alone and kind of like confused as to what to do. Having being able to read a story or being able to see, you know, some example of someone going through, it doesn't even have to be the same, right. But something similar is really powerful to make you feel like you're not alone and you're not like going out of your mind, right? Because it can often feel like that. It can often feel like, well, is it just me? Am I just imagining this? Um, so I think that's that's a super important point. Mm. And you do it so beautifully in the book. Like there's great storytelling in there when you're in the chapter and you're talking about, you know, that season of life or what's going on and, you know, the the reference to, yes, like, okay, here's kind of the science side of it and what we know and what we don't know. But then you really bring in a story, like there's a story mm -hmm. in there about, yeah, some, you know, someone that's like struggled with this thing within, you know, with the, the breast side of things or when they're entering perimenopause. And I think that's, you know, I thought that was a really powerful piece to the book. So I'm like, oh, yes, there's like a story and there's like a bit of a case study that you know, women reading this can be like, yes, like I see myself in this woman that, you know, couldn't find the right sports bra for so long and just like didn't want to run because my boobs were so yeah. uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I like to be honest too, like that's been, I think the most validating part about writing the book is getting messages from people, you know, saying, saying like, this is, oh my gosh, this is totally my experience. Or like, thank you for writing about this. Like no one's ever talked about this before. Like those types of things, like remind me why I, I did this and kind of tortured myself doing this. Right. Um, but why it's worth it too, because like, that's what I want is I want people to feel like they're seen that their experience are valid. Um, and that, you know, yeah, we might not have all the answers. Right. But at least we're acknowledging what's going on now. Yeah, I'd love to know what was like, what like blew your mind when you were like researching and writing it? Was there like, what are a couple of key things that you're like, 
wow, like I didn't know this or this is like blowing my mind or this is like making me really angry. Were there like some big emotions to like some key pieces that kind of came out of the research and writing the book for you? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first ones was, was around, um, looking at the science of sports bras and, and breast biomechanics and just realizing we really haven't been studying this very long, right? Like we haven't really been studying this since like the 2000s, like late 2000s. Um, and so no wonder sports bras are terrible. Again, this wasn't something that like I, I didn't necessarily matter as much to me given my physique, but, um, but like, it, it just, it blew my mind, right? That we haven't considered it or just assume that, you know, who cares? Who needs to study breasts? Like they just go up and down, right? Like who, what difference does it make? Uh, whereas like breast pain is a huge barrier to physical activity and, you know, breast biomechanics can also really affect your running gait and how efficient you are in running and, and just how you move, right? So that was one big one. I think the other big one for me, you know, personally was really around um, when I was researching around injury because I, you know, I am injury prone. I've had, you know, I'm currently have my third ACL tear. I'm about to have surgery in a couple of weeks. But um, it was one of these things where for so long, I just assumed, yeah, it's just the female body. You just start, we're just prone to these injuries, right? Like there's nothing because we have wide hip, wider hips and, you know, X, Y, or Z, like there's nothing really I can do about it. Right. Um, and feeling very almost resigned to that, right. Like kind of helpless in a way. Um, especially because twice the, you know, two of the three times that I've torn my ACL, it's, it's been skiing. Right. So it's like, what can I do? Um, but I think in researching that more and like looking at some of the studies that have been done and really looking at, um, again, the environmental uh, factors that girls function within, right? Like, so the athletic environment that girls are brought in, up in, how they are introduced to sports, whether or not they get the same amount of training as boys, training in terms of biomechanics and all of this stuff at a young age, um, whether or not girls have access to the same resources, especially at the professional levels, right? As men and boys, um, how those factors influence injury rates, like even things like shoes, right? So there has not been a women's specific soccer cleat until 2020, which again, was one of these things where it was like, what? <laughs> like, how is that even possible? Um, you know, I feel like girls and women's soccer exploded after the 1999 World Cup, especially here in the US, right? Um, how is there not a women's specific soccer shoe? But those, you know, the way that those shoes influence biomechanics, influence the way force is moved up through the leg and distributed can have such a big impact on injury and, and fatigue and injury, right? So like, why haven't we looked at these other factors that could contribute to injury rates? Um, especially as we've seen, you know, this summer with the World Cup and so many top football players have been out with ACL injuries and other knee injuries. Like, why aren't we paying more attention to this? So that was one of the things that was really eye-opening to me, really just starting to like rethink how we think about injury um, and, you know, moving away from this idea that it's, there's something wrong with a woman's body and the way that it's built that makes it not suited to play sports or makes it less durable at, you know, as an athlete compared to boys and men. 
Yeah, just the old like QN girl type. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's like it's exactly. just because of that. Yeah, it's just the the way the way. Yeah, why? Um, out of out of your research, why are we more prone? Like, especially this summer. Like now, I would say now, like we definitely have a lot more awareness and more support. And I would definitely say there's a lot more women like doing their strength and conditioning yep. training, especially at like an elite level. So why are we still seeing, you know, seeing like ACL and knee injuries? Yeah, I think, you know, talking specifically at the elite level, I think there are a couple of things, you know, one, as I was saying, you know, thinking about how these athletes grew up in the youth sports system, right? Like oftentimes, you know, soccer players will go to like certain academies and um, are the girls getting the same attention as the boys? Are the co Is the coaching caliber the same as the boys? Because that's kind of a critical period of time, right? Where you are establishing these key biomechanics, learning how your body moves, really like that's getting ingrained in your system and that grows with you as you get older, right? So I think that's part of it, kind of looking at where they started and then looking at, um, yeah, while women tend to be strength training more, but like, have they always been encouraged to do that, right? Or is this something that they're just getting started in? But I think on the professional level, as we've seen the women's game professionalize, right, become so much more popular, um, these athletes are being asked to play so many more games, in the season. So like it's a, the density of these games has increased a lot. Um, they are playing at such a phenomenal level of athleticism, right? The, the intensity of the game itself has increased. There's been, you know, research looking at, um, you know, the, I think it was the 2019 and the 2015 FIFA world cup, the women's world cup, and looking at, you know, the differences in intensity in terms of like you know, everything from top speed to like mileage that these players are covering, like all of these different things. And you can just see like, it's, it, it's been exponential, right? Mm -hmm. How this has increased. So they're being asked to do so much more, more physically asked to do so much more physically within like a short period of time or like within a condensed season. Um, but are we giving them the same resources to help them recover from that? Right. And if we aren't studying women athletes, we don't necessarily have as good a handle on how women's bodies adapt to that level and intensity of training and what they need to recover from it, right? So it's like that lack of science, that lack of investment and resources to support those athletes, to make sure that they're healthy, make sure that they're doing the things that they need to be doing as individual athletes, right? Not just doing some like random program across the board. Um, are we investing in that? Because I, I mean, I would argue that we probably are on the men's side, right? The staffing is so much bigger. There's so many more, you know, sports science staff and trainers and all these other people who are working with those individual athletes as compared to the women's side. So I think that that's a big piece of it. Um, at least I would argue. Mm. Yeah, it's um. So the like the the gap really still like is very like at a lot of levels is from yeah. what I'm hearing. You know, we do have like kind of like that ground level in the lab, and then it kind of is trickling 
down or across or however you want to view it of like there is still a bit of a gap there of like access to resources maybe even access to like the coaching caliber or like Mm -hmm. you know their support team or whatever and so yeah yeah Um, I mean because even if you think about it right like men's coaching positions men's like sports science like all of those support staff positions are probably paid higher than on the women's side so when you think about like who's going out to apply for these jobs like I don't know if it were me I would probably apply to the job that's going to pay me more right at least initially think about you know that's where I would probably target my my energy um so yeah you might you might be getting very different caliber of staff members if you're not resourcing your women's team to the same extent as the men's team yeah, I just saw that you you went to the US Open. Um, it's on right now. I'm a huge tennis fan. Like I love tennis. I grew up watching it, not playing it because I'm not very good at it. And I like to do things that I'm very good at. <laughs> um, but I saw there they're actually celebrating. Uh, I think the US Open became the first sporting event in history that had equal pay for men and women competitors. I'm pretty sure that's their 50th anniversary. It's, yeah, 50th, yeah, 50th year. It's wild. Yeah, which is really cool. Like 50 years doesn't seem that long ago, but when you think about kind of how far behind we are and we're lagging a little bit, you're like, oh, yeah, like 50 years ago, that's like quite a while ago. Yeah. Considering like we're still so far behind research-wise and study-wise that that's like, you know, that's a quite a long time ago where they really started to even out that yeah. pay gap. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's, right, that's, Billie Jean King has been such a pioneer in this and kind of leading the way um, for women athletes and really women's sports overall and just, you know, demanding equity, um, demanding the equity that that these athletes deserve. Yeah, it's um, I'd love to like out of out of interest, did you have an approach to writing the book? Like, did you just start to, or was it just kind of like, <laughs> I, it's, I'm really like, cause I, yeah, I'm really quite interested in people's processes or uh, systems that they, they use. And so yeah. when I was reading the book and I was just thinking, oh, like, I just wonder how Christine approached it. Like, you know, did she have a strategy or a process or it would it be okay if we, if you just talked a little yeah. bit about your, your, how you approached it. Yeah. I was a very naive child walking into this process. Um, because right. Like as a journalist, I'm, I tend to work on shorter deadlines or, you know, I'm lucky if I have maybe a month to work on a story sometimes. Um, so I figured a year, like that's so much time. I have so much time to work on this. This is going to be amazing. Um, and I have roughly, I think I have 11, almost 12 chapters or so. I was like, that's that's like a chapter a month. That's totally fine. I can do this. Um, so the plan was um, to work on work on a chapter a month. I would, you know, kind of do my research and interviews probably, you know, the first half of the month. And then I would write up, I would draft the chapter the second half. I was like, that's, that's totally doable. Um, it definitely took me a lot longer than that. But I did, I did work, you know, kind of piecemeal, like one chapter, worked on one chapter at a time because because in the book, each chapter is fairly like self-contained, you know, except for like maybe like the first couple. Um, so it was easier for me to wrap my head around like just talking about like breast health and breast biomechanics and like just immersing myself in that world for a month um, 
before moving on to the next thing. Um, so that's kind of how I approached it. Um, it was definitely, it was definitely a lot of, a lot of hit or miss in terms of finding those stories, you know, that I wanted to include because sometimes I knew exactly who I wanted to reach out to and had a sense that they would say yes and agree to talk to me. Other times, like I had no idea. It was a lot of like, you know, sending out like random tweets and like posting on Instagram, you know, just like any which way I could figure out and like basically blasting a message out being like, this is what I'm, I think I'm looking for. Um, <clears throat> but it was, it was a really interesting process because I think I'm also glad to have had this longer timeline because it allowed me to really kind of sit with the material. And I think, um, come back with, more interesting insights than I think I would have, right? If I were just writing this as an article, if you will, because yeah, I had more time to kind of ruminate on things and to, and to figure it out. And it was hard. I mean, my first draft that I submitted, I was submitting drafts to my editor kind of as I went, because I was like, this is my first book. I don't know what I'm doing. Can I send you drafts to make sure that we're, we're both on the same page here? Um, but those first drafts were definitely a mess. Um, and she really helped me kind of, again, kind of see the larger message through that, through that I was trying to get at, because I think, again, as a journalist doing this, I'm very used to, I'm like, I'm reporting on the facts. I'm reporting on the findings. I'm, what I had to do with the book was I had to be the expert, which was really uncomfortable for me. Um, my editor, you know, one of the first kind of feedback that she gave me on that first round of drafts that I sent her was like, you, your authorial voice needs to come out more. And I was like, my who? <laughs> like, what is that? I don't know what that means. And I'm like Googling authorial voice. What does this mean? Um, but yeah, but I had to be the expert, right? I'm the one who is pulling together this information and creating this narrative and creating this story that I'm telling through all of this or trying to tell through all of this. So that was really uncomfortable and took a little while to kind of get used to for sure. Yeah, I'd love to know from your lens and your perspective, what what is that? What was the main narrative, like the main mission, like the the big like key takeaway that you wanted when someone picked up the book? You're like, okay, I'm really trying to thread this like mission, this vision, this narrative through through the book. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it is about how kind of sexism and gender bias. Um, influence influences both of these systems, both these systems of sport and science um, in a way that is really invisible to a lot of us. So for, it was important for me to try to make that more visible, to bring that up to the surface a little bit more and make people start to question um, these things and ideas that we've often taken for granted, right? That we've never really thought about explicitly because again, like that was, that was my place, right? Like I never thought explicitly about the studies I was looking at, like per se, like in, in the sense that, you know, oh yeah, I just assumed that, you know, these studies that involve young college age men would apply to someone like me. Like, of course, like we're all humans. It's all the same. It's just, you know, we're same, same output. Um, so I think for me, that was a big part of it was really trying to, to bring to light a lot of these, like the sexism and gender bias that, that does infiltrate these systems and how that influences what we think, what we do. Um, and ultimately like, has a really um, 
important impact on the lives of girls, of girls and women in sport. Um, so that was a big one. Hmm. Yeah, you definitely made me think about like small things that I was like, ah, oh, yeah, like I didn't know a lot about about the breast health stuff and the, you know, how we only really just started to study it in the early 2000s. And then I actually went and uh, dived into, you know, when you talk about some of the women that created kind of the first sports bra and she actually has a book. And mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. like I didn't know a lot about that and it's not something that I am you know, I, like I ever really thought about that much for me, like, and I have like decent sized boobs. So it was always like two sports bras on and yeah. like, you know, yes, it is a bit uncomfortable. And, you know, even with women that I work with now, like sometimes you'll be at the gym and you'll be on the machine or on a bench and like your boobs are squished <laughs> so hard into the bench, yeah. especially if you're like lifting decent amount of weight, like yes. if you're doing like an incline, like yes. dumbbell row. And I was like, remember the other day and I'm like, your boobs are just like, and you just don't, we don't think about you, stuff like that. You just Not, accept it. Yeah. We just accept that. Hey, actually like this is pretty uncomfortable <laughs> or wearing two sports sports bras where like the rib cage can't yes. expand and you can't breathe properly. This is pretty uncomfortable. So yeah, there were just so many little things and I had no idea about the soccer cleat either. Mm -hmm. How like at that level, you just assume, this is so funny, isn't it? How the mind just assumes that, oh no, they'd be taken care of. Or yeah. of course they're going to have like, you know, they only just started recently doing like um, individualized, like, um, specific sports yeah, bras yeah. for some of the female athletes. I know they did that with the soccer players recently, but you just, we just assume, isn't it? And so, yeah, I can see that, that, that mission or that narrative runs through of like, Hey, did you know, <laughs> did you know this, uh, yeah. that we actually don't know this, or this is not happening and yeah. this is what we're really struggling with. So can we kind of make it happen? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I would, I think, you know, along with that, the other part that was important to me was um, kind of just, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about like, you know, there's so many things that are taboo and like that we don't talk about. I think just starting to talk about these things, right. And like, just want, just trying to put it out there as again, this neutral thing, like talking about menstrual cycles, talking about breasts, talking about pel pelvic floors, all of these things that we don't talk about because, you know, they're associated with sex and fertility and all of this stuff, right? That we, that's not polite conversation. But the fact is, is that it's part of, you know, a, a female body's physiology. It's just, it is, right? Like that's just part of what it is. And there's no reason why we shouldn't think about it or pay attention to it or need to ignore it, if that makes sense. Um, and it's not something to be ashamed of, but in fact, like if we can empower girls and women to really start to pay attention to it, to really like understand their own bodies, like we're putting them in a much better position to do well for themselves. Mm. Uh, I have one more question before I ask you a little bit about your your next project and and what's going on after your little break and uh is does that is that okay yeah yeah um actually no no let's start I would love to know uh you've just recently went traveling so mm -hmm. you just you came off a high like you you wrote 
wrote the book. The book came out. You've been on book tour. You've done a lot of stuff. You recently went away. Where did you travel to and what did you do? Um, yeah, it was, it's been a little bit of a hectic summer. Um, so we were in Europe for about two weeks um, for my mom's birthday. So my mom loves cruises. So we went on like the whole family, me, my family, my brother and his family, my sister and her family on a European cruise in the Mediterranean, which was hot and exhausting, but like a lot of fun too. Cause you know, it was, it was fun to have the whole family together. So that was lovely. And then um, my family, we just were in Hawaii for, um, we go to Hawaii most summers and spend a few weeks there to kind of get out of New York City and decompress. Yeah, nice decompression, especially at that time of the year out yeah. of the city. Yeah, you you live in Brooklyn, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so quite intense on the old nervous system, like living in like... Yes, I think all of us came back from, came back to, you know, we recently came up, came back about a month, a week ago. All of us came back and it was like immediately like, you could feel us like, like the stress, like immediately sinking its claws into us, but um, trying really hard not to let that happen. Yeah. Okay. So my question was around this narrative around how it's downhill after 40, you know, looping back around to yeah. the article that you wrote, you know, then you've written the book, there's the chapter on, you know, perimenopause and menopause and beyond. Yeah. And, you know, definitely I would say, the culture has the the old narrative of like kind of the old game, which is, yes, it's like downhill after 40 and you're going to get older and things are going to feel hard and you're going to have no energy and like, you know, you're going to get weaker and you're not going to be able to perform. And I would just love to hear, you know, after doing your research, uh, writing the book and especially on that chapter, a lot of women I work with are in their 40s. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the work that we do is really looking at building a strong foundation so that we can prepare well mm -hmm. to enter into this like second phase of our life, which, you know, I think new narrative, new game based on, you know, some of the, the big players in the female physiology space and um, you know, the the work from people like you is it's not downhill after 40. Here we've got this new, hopefully like more groundbreaking research and science and studies. Here's like plans and strategies that we can support you with so you can actually enter into your 40s, 50s and beyond. I just would love to hear your thoughts. Like did it change your view on like aging and like being in your like 40s and you know, performing and yeah, I'd just like to hear what yeah. you think about that. I mean, to be totally honest, right? Like it's hard and it's, you know, I can see how easy it is to get caught in that tract of like, well, I'm just going to slow down, right? Like I'm just going to keep doing like plot, <laughs> plot around Prospect Park for, you know, five miles, slow and easy. And I'm just going to keep doing that and, um, and feel like I can't do more because I, again, to be totally honest, like that's what, like I started falling. I, I still feel like I'm kind of in that kind of dip, right? Like feeling like a little unmotivated, a little bit, you know, kind of feeling like, um, what can I, it, 
depressed is not the right word, but feeling down about the where my body is and my fitness is. And in part two, it is because I'm injured. You know, it's like I tore my ACL back in February. I'm only getting surgery now. So it's been like kind of a long span between those times and, and waiting to get to recover, right? So feeling a little unmotivated in that way. But that being said, um, I think what I really learned through talking to a lot of these experts and researching this is that that doesn't have to be the case, right? Like, because our bodies change, it doesn't mean that we can't have still have goals. We can't still do the things that we love to do. It might look different, at least initially, at least this is what I'm telling myself, at least, <laughs> like, at least through this, like this transition period, right? Where the hormones are again, a little haywire, no one knows what's going on. No one knows how long it's going to last. It is this period of transition that is akin to puberty, right? Where everything is in flux and you are getting used to this new body. And it can be really frustrating, but but there are some adjustment, adjustment. There are definitely adjustments that you can make during this time to make you still feel good, right? And then once we kind of get through this transition period, at least what I, from what I've heard from my friends and other folks, like it gets better, right? Like you, you again, you have this, this, um, I don't want to say new or different body, but like you have another version of yourself in a way um, that you can continue to challenge and um, grow and, you know, get and again, be active and do all these things that you want to do. But I think like it is recognizing that during this period when things are a little haywire, like, your training and nutrition and all of that stuff might need to look different than it was, you know, in your twenties and in your thirties, because your body is not the same as it was in your twenties and thirties. And that's fine. That's okay. That's a normal part of this. Um, so as much of a message like to your listeners as it is to me, right? Like really recognizing for myself that like, yeah, that means I need to be lifting heavier weights. I need to be making sure that i polarizing my workouts a little bit more, right? So that there is that difference in intensity that I'm not just going out there and like plodding around really slowly, really easily, like every day of the week. Because, you know, as much as I love running, like I can still do that, but that shouldn't be everything that I do every day. Um, so like those types of things, making sure that I'm eating enough protein and staying hydrated and like all that other stuff that we should be doing anyways. Um, but just paying attention to that more. Like though, I think those pieces that we could get away with when we were younger, we do have to pay more attention to. Yeah, I even, I'm 36 and I notice a really big difference from 26 to 36. And I, yeah, haven't entered entered my 40s yet, but, you know, when I was in my mid to late 20s, I was competing in Olympic weightlifting, like mm -hmm. training a lot, you know, high volumes. And even now, like 10 years later, I notice quite a big difference in just the ability to hold volume or intensity or recovery. Yeah. Uh, and then I would say, yeah, we would, you know, we would see then, uh, and I do in my women, we see a, again, another bigger difference when we're going from the, that, that mid 30 range into like our mid to late forties. Yeah. Uh, and we really just need, yeah, we need the understanding of what's happening. I think that's really helpful. And then we just need those strategies, I think, and, and the plans and, uh, you know, I've heard you talk a little bit about before around, 
you know, what you did find and see is that we definitely have an underfueling problem. Mm-hmm. Like we're just, and I've really found that in my own experience and working with so many women now, it's yes, female physiology plays a big part. And yes, our menstrual cycle could impact our training and performance. But what I've seen that creates a bigger impact than that is that a lot we how well we fuel mm-hmm. and then how well we train mm-hmm. whether that's program wise access to certain things has a way bigger impact on you know our training and our performance than our our menstrual cycle i'd love just to hear your thoughts on that yeah no i was just having this conversation with someone too because um just in thinking about the way women have been told they should eat Right. And the kind of like this, all the pressure of like diet culture and like what we think athletes' bodies should be. Um, And we have these big athletic goals, right? These performance oriented goals. And yet we're not giving our bodies that fuel and the energy it needs to achieve that. So it's like, of course, of course, we're not going to live up to our potential. But anyhow, but just thinking about like both in terms of, you know, all these messages that women and girls get around nutrition and body image coupled with, you know, at least back in my day, when I think about it, like all of those like workout programs that you would get in women's fitness magazines and stuff like that, those aren't really like, those aren't great programs, but yet like, that's where I learned, like picked up all of this information initially, right? Like that's what I thought I should be doing. And so it almost feels like, we're not giving girls and women the best information about how to fuel your bodies and what that actually means. We just assume that you know how to do it because we have to eat, right? Um, And we're also not giving girls and women the best information on what it means to have like a progressive training program um, that can actually help you achieve your goals. It might, at least in my experience, it might be a little bit better, like if in terms of you know, like running, say, like if you're training for a marathon, you can, you can get like a training program, periodized training program that can like build you up and get you to your goal. But I never felt like I had access to that same type of information when it came to strength training or weightlifting. I still don't, right? Like I still think about that. And I, you know, I was talking to my, you know, I have two teenage sons and they're both like, I want want to lift like I want to get bigger you know get better for my sport and all the stuff and they're asking me these questions and I'm saying I'll get you a person like I know a lot of good personal tra- or trainers and like strength coaches out there I'll set you up with them and you know they're kind of hesitant about it but I'm like but they know they can put together these these types of progressive programs for you like rather than me telling you random exercises to do or you doing random exercises but I think it's that piece of information that we just don't equip people with and especially we don't give girls and women. Um, so yeah, I mean, the underfueling problem, I feel like is really the crux of a lot of issues in that if you don't fuel your body, your body does not have enough energy to, like it, your body freaks out essentially, right? Like it starts to freak out. And of course it's not going to adapt. Of course it's not going to train. Of course it's not going to recover. Of course you're going to feel terrible. Um, all of these different things that like, I feel like if we, if we work on that, if we can at least just fuel ourselves sufficiently, right, that can go a long way to dealing with a lot of other issues that we're seeing. 
um, and that we think, right, is menstrual cycle related, or we blame on our menstrual cycles, or we do this or that, or if we think that if I just train X, Y, or Z way on days six, seven, and eight of my cycle, everything will be better, right? It's like, no, just eat more. Like, just, just make sure you're eating sufficiently. I'm pretty sure that that will probably have a bigger impact than any like hormonal fluctuations that are going on. Yeah, Christine, I, I truly believe like books like yours should now be like um, requ required reading. <laughs> like I created Warrior School essentially, you know, because all the stuff we do inside of that is what we really should be taught. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be at school. You know, that's a lot of pressure for, for teachers. But, you know, our parents didn't know this stuff as well. And yeah. so we've got to be taught it somehow, I think. Like, and I wish I was taught this, you know, yep. as, as a young female. And my hope, you know, and, and now I work with a lot of women that weren't taught this. And so we get to our, you know, mid to late 30s, our 40s, and we realize that, hey, we actually haven't, we don't know how to nourish ourselves mm -hmm. and, and train properly. And so my hope, yeah, through Warrior School was like, okay, I want to teach you all the shit that you weren't taught in school. Yeah. And, you know, when I read your book, I was like, you know what, like, this is the stuff, like this stuff, you know, this real life stuff of like, let's talk about breath and sports bras let's talk about puberty and those changes let's talk about sport and performance and nutrition and training like let's teach young girls how to train properly how to nourish themselves yeah. properly because then we get to they'll just have such a more powerful relationship with their body with sport mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. training you know and I just yeah and so one thank you like thank you so much for writing the book for pulling it all together for writing it in a beautiful way and I just like I so badly want it to be like like please like please make it like you know required reading for so many coaches and teachers and parents that we just need a better understanding so we can raise more like confident girls that yeah. like get it and are nourished and are strong and you know can step onto the field and feel like you know what I got this. Like I'm ready. I, I understand my body. I'm supported, uh, and so just a huge, huge thank you for oh, writing it. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, I mean that's like that's a thousand percent why I wrote the book. Right? Is that I want it to get it in the hands, especially of the girls and the parents and the coaches, and for those reasons, because like this is yeah, this is all information that I wish I knew. Um, because yeah, it's our bodies. Like, why don't we know this information? Yeah. Why do we have to struggle for decades? <laughs> decades. <laughs> many, many decades. Decades. I work with women. That's not years. It's decades. Yes. And it's not, it's not your fault. It's not our fault. It's just that we didn't have the information. Yeah. We didn't have the support. And we are, we were relying on a few key people that kind of got it, that had been in the industry for a while and had saw these things and started to talk about it. But yeah, like we can save you decades. If you read Christine's, go Please. buy Christine's book, Up to Speed, she can save you decades of time. Okay, last question, and I'll let you go, is what's next? What's That's a big question. You're just like, Amy, I just wrote, I just finished three years of my life writing the book. But like, what's next? What are you going to do now with your life? No, it's a really good question. And it's something that I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Um, yeah, I mean, I think... I there's I would 
I think I would, I'm far enough away now, I feel like I'm like, I think I would like to write another book. Um, I'm not sure quite still noodling on a couple of ideas. I don't have anything definite yet, but in the interim, you know, I am, I do want to keep writing about women athletes and like the amazing things that women are doing in sport. Um, you know, trying to highlight and profile folks who might not get as much, you know, airtime and, and, you know, print time and all of that, um, which has been fun. Also just trying to, you know, do more creative writing too. Um, that's more for myself, I think, cause I miss a lot of that. I, cause ultimately what I love doing is telling stories. Um, so just trying to different mediums to do that. Mm. Yeah. And you're going to go get ACL surgery. And <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm having ACL surgery in a couple of weeks. It's great. It's fine. Okay, you got totally this. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> the third, three deep, third time, three deep in your third pro, times the yeah. tr the charm. Old hat. <laughs> so you'll be recovering from that for a little bit. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the boy, boys, two boys you have. Yeah, two boys. Yeah. They're back at school. Uh, they actually start tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. All right, back to school tomorrow. Uh, Christine, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for writing this book. I, yeah, I appreciate you. No, thank you, Amy, for having me on the show. I really loved this conversation. It was so fun. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't, please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another warrior woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, warrior woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.